and welcome to Top Hole, the podcast about Eleanor M. Brent Dyer, the chalet school and anything vaguely connected to them. I'm Deborah Lofus and I'm a fan. The usual provisos apply with respect to pronunciation, spoilers and bonkersness. Please refer to episode zero. It's still the autumn term, so this week we're looking at another autumn term book, the 25th Chalet School book, Shocks for the Chalet School. There's something about the start of the new school year which still excites me over 30 years since I left formal education. EBD herself captures this beautifully in the opening paragraphs of one of her earliest books, The Feud in the Fifth Remove. There's a newness to September, in direct contrast to the seasons, in the Northern Hemisphere at least, and it seems full of possibilities new forms, new girls, new stationery. There's a lot to look forward to. And in the chalet verse, we get this newness twice for this particular term, because Shocks for the Chalet School sits alongside the Chalet School in the Oberland, which covers the same time period. Oberland is about the very first term for the finishing branch of the Chalet School, headed up by Miss Wilson. Shocks is about those left behind on St Briarville's, the island off the coast of Wales, who are also having to cope without Joey and Madge, both currently living in Canada. So the usual cast of adult characters is somewhat depleted in this book. The school library copy, and later my own copy of Shocks, was the Armada second style, impossibly long-legged prefects staggering in the mud. This scene was also the one depicted on the cover of both hardback editions, the second showing the rescue of Julie rather than the initial headlong rush into the ditch. The third style paperback shows three middles in gardening dungarees and also bizarrely white blouses and orange ties peering down into the well. They all have suitably shocked faces, appropriate for the cover. But pretty well any chalet school book could have the title Shocks for the Chalet School because it's not the quietest of establishments and much of what happens in shocks is no more shocking than what goes on in other terms. So what are the shocks this term? Well, in roughly chronological order... A new girl, Emirates Hope, arrives from Australia. Joe has had twins. Robin is going to become a nun. Elfie has had to leave school. Love Day is head girl. This certainly came as a shock to me. The kindergarten has been relocated to the mainland. There are no new girls on the first day, a very sensible move given the events of the previous two books, although creating significant extra work for the escort mistresses who have to do it all twice. Miss Burnett vanishes into a hole in the ground. The prefects have an unexpected encounter with mud. There is the possibility of treasure at Kittywake Cove. The girls don't know about this. Madge arrives at half-term. Elfie returns to school. Joey turns up for the nativity play. So the shocks are mainly compressed into the first half of the term and it makes for a very busy chalet school book. There is a lot going on here and it starts with a cable from Australia which says, Am sending daughter Emirates to you for next four years. Stop. Emirates, 13 years and 11 months, needs discipline and has no manners. Stop. Please correct faults and help. Stop. Send all accounts to Victoria Woolgrowers Modern Assurance Company Limited, Elm Street, London, SW7. Stop. References from Mrs John Mackenzie of Manly, Sydney, known to you. Stop. Emirates leaving on next plane for England. Stop. Completely in your hands. Stop. From Hope, High Leaps, Manly, near Sydney, New South Wales. This is a breathtakingly bold introduction to one of the most interesting characters in the chalet verse. 
Emerence's father has had enough of his daughter, so he is packing her off to school on the other side of the globe for the next four years so they can sort out her manners and morals. I think we learn as much about Mr Hope as we do about Emerence from this cable. He clearly has money, this is obvious from the length of the cable, but the wording of the cable also indicates that money is no object. This is a man who believes that money will buy him whatever he wants, so he sees absolutely nothing wrong with basically dumping his daughter onto the school without first checking that this arrangement is acceptable to the school as well. And he is quite clearly a dreadful parent, both to have let things get to this stage and in the way he is dealing with it. This is a genuinely shocking opening, so the book earns its title on page one as far as I'm concerned. And much of the book is about Emerence getting some of the corners knocked off her and learning to settle down and stop behaving like a little hooligan. The chalet school works its charm here. She's a much better behaved child by the end of term than she was at the start of term, but finds it impossible to undo nearly 14 years worth of poor parenting. Emerence remains at the chalet school for her four years, but she never entirely settles down. She becomes Margot Maynard's best friend and, on the plats, ends up in the same form as the triplets, with girls two to three years younger than she is. So having started her school career in Mary Lou's cohort, Emerence ends it in the triplets' cohort. This transition provides a nice bridge between two particularly characterful sets of girls, and it also means that Emerence never really recedes into the background, as so many other difficult new girl characters do. She is frequently in the thick of things right up to her final weeks at the school. And she makes her mark as soon as she arrives, gate-crashing a prefects meeting and throwing a tantrum when they escort her out again. Her next incident is one which is referred to in later books. Emerence decides to use the main stairs after leaving her cubicle in the morning and is caught by Miss Dean, who tells her to go to the back stairs, which are the ones the girls are supposed to use, go up them and come down again. Emerence refuses and finds herself spending the entire morning at the foot of the back stairs, being supervised by a succession of mistresses who bring their folding desk and their work with them and do what they do without giving Emerence any attention at all. As a strategy, this is absolutely brilliant, and Emerence realises that she will be staying put until she decides to do as Miss Dean instructed her, and so, eventually, she does. But that's not the end of the shocks provided by Emerence this term. She hides in the cupboard in the prefect's room. She swears at Mary Lou. Well, we've all been there, Emerence. And she manages to choke up an important water overflow using a discarded scarecrow. Emerence's logic for hiding in the cupboard in the prefect's room is quite brilliant. The prefects chucked her out of their room at the start of term, and by hiding in the cupboard, she is defiantly getting her own way over this. One does wonder how she managed to get into both the room and the cupboard, given that both appear to be kept locked, and indeed how she knew that the head girl had decided to hold an impromptu prefects meeting on the school's return from its half-term holiday. But let's park that, because the whole incident provides one of my favourite lines in EBD's entire output. Emirates falls asleep in the cupboard, and later wakes up to find herself entirely alone and rather hungry, the rest of the school being at supper. She starts banging against the cupboard door to attract attention, and her thuds are heard in the dining hall. Miss O'Ryan is sent off to investigate, but needs the key to the prefect's room. The key is currently in Loveday's possession, and she is at a far table and unaware of what is going on. EBD says that Loveday had heard the thuds like everyone else, but had passed it over as some of the maids doing some hammering. This is brilliant. It reflects exactly how people rationalise unusual sights and sounds in everyday life. Maids don't do hammering, and they certainly don't do it at supper time. But this is an entirely plausible explanation to somebody who is busy supervising Upper 3A and doesn't have time to spare to think about it. This piece of brilliance is quickly followed by another one. The prefects subsequently have the task of dealing with Emerence's misdemeanour. 
and one of them has the bright idea of setting her to clean out the cupboards in her own free time. It took her six evenings, by which time the two big cupboards were spick and span, and Emerence felt that she never wanted to set foot inside that room again. This set of prefects are really on top form. The prefects in shocks are Bride Bettany's cohort, and readers have watched them move up through the school pretty well from the kindergarten, which Bride, Julie and Nancy all attended when the school was on Guernsey at the start of the war. They were central characters when Flora and Fiona MacDonald arrived. Bride was given the task of sheepdogging Lavender Lee when she came laughing along. Tom Gay, a leading light throughout her chalet school career and beyond, joined this group shortly afterwards, and they were in the thick of things with Annis Lovell during the school's first term on the island. As a group, they are a really good set of characters, and they make an excellent team of prefects. This is reflected in Miss Annesley's comments when she is telling them who has been selected to be head girl. Usually there are a few girls from the year above who can take on the senior prefect roles, but this year all of the previous cohort have scooted off to join the finishing branch. But this situation, the departure en masse of a year group, is not completely unknown, and there is usually a single clear leader in any cohort. This group is so good that there were apparently four girls under consideration for the job of head girl. Loveday is chosen because she is the oldest, but my money would always have been on Bride, and EBD herself seems to have had second thoughts, judging by what happens in subsequent books. Anyway, there is no lacking in originality in this bunch. The party they give the staff is a masterpiece, involving mixed-up shoes, mixed-up underwear, baby photographs, inedible apples, and follow my leader. The follow my leader ends with a quite extraordinary feat of athleticism, as Tom does a series of handsprings in which Miss Orion successfully follows her. I don't think I've ever seen anyone do a handspring anywhere other than an Olympic arena and I certainly wouldn't expect a nearly 30-year-old history teacher to be able to do one. Another shock from the chalet school. Ah oh yes, back to the shocks. On the family front, jo, Joey has had twins, a boy and a girl, Felix and Felicity, having started her family with triplet girls and then had three sons, one at a time, in the intervening years. Her husband Jack surprises the handful of staff at school before the start of term by arriving unannounced to tell them the news. Her older sister Madge, Lady Russell, the founder of the chalet school, then surprises everyone by turning up unannounced at half term. I have to say, some of the shocks in this book could probably have been avoided with a quick phone call beforehand. The school is on the phone, even on an island. Madge has flown in from Canada to support her brother Dick, whose wife Molly is dangerously ill. One of the very best elements of EBD's work is her continued reference to characters that loyal readers already know. This happens early on in Shocks, where Miss Dean and Miss Annesley briefly discuss Jennifer Penrose, a character central to the previous term's events. But it happens much more dramatically with Madge's arrival at half-term, when EBD introduces a background storyline about Molly Bettany, mother, of course, to Bride and her siblings. Chalet school readers have known Dick and Molly Bettany for years. Dick is the character whose words open the very first book. His letters from India to his sisters punctuate the first few stories, he and Molly bring their very young children to visit Madge and, by extension, the school in the Tyrol, and the four oldest, Peggy, Ricks, Bride and Jackie, make their home with Madge when Dick and Molly return to India. When they return from India, they visit the school straight away, and subsequently we meet them at school events. So we know Dick and Molly, not just in the role of the Bettany girls' parents, but also as characters in their own right. And this makes Molly's dangerous illness significant, even though neither she nor Dick actually appear in this book. We have already had, near the start of the book, news of Elfie's stepmother's sudden death. But Elfie is a side character, and we have never met her stepmother, so the impact here for the reader is about the friendship between Bride and Elfie. Bride's mother, Molly, she's a character we know. She's one of our friends, 
and Madge, her sister-in-law, has flown across the Atlantic at a time when flying was still not the normal way of crossing the ocean because Molly is so dreadfully ill. Readers are right to be worried. In the event, Molly's illness is successfully resolved by the end of term, although its ramifications linger on for a few books more. But the incident demonstrates a couple of general points about the chalet school books. EBD clearly attaches significant importance to family, not just blood family, but the creation of new family ties by marriage, adoption and close friendship. EBD's own family background is perhaps best summarised by the word complicated, and this is reflected in her books, but the extended family she creates at the chalet school is reassuring and comforting. Family matters. Family looks after family. This was, after all, the entire reason behind Madge setting up the chalet school in the first place, and here we are, 24 books later, and family remains at the heart of the story. Molly's illness also shows just what a glorious web of characters EBD has created in the chalet verse. If she needs an off-stage crisis to provide a bit of tension, or if she needs a new mistress, there is a multitude of characters she can choose from, and we, her readers, recognise and care about them. This does not, of course, stop EBD from inventing new off-stage characters, such as Mr Hope, when necessary, but she doesn't have to do this all the time. She can use characters her readers are already familiar with. Miss Burnett, the new games mistress in Shocks, is known to readers as Peggy Burnett, younger sister of former head girl in the Tyrrell Mary. This extended chalet school family is, I think, crucial to the series' success. Joey is referring to old girls' babies as the school's grandchildren way back in Tyrrell, cementing the feeling of family, even when the connection is solely down to having attended the school. Indeed, Emerence's arrival at the school is the result of this extended connection. Emerence lives next door to Mrs Mackenzie, who is better known to readers as Con Stewart, the chalet school's original history mistress and Con Maynard's godmother. Miss Stewart, with her red-gold hair, her nickname of Bonnie, after Bonnie Prince Charlie because of her initials, and her somewhat caustic comments, was a key character in the Tyrol, and left only when her fiancé arrived in Guernsey to marry her not long after the start of the war. We have not really heard from her since, but in shocks she provides us with a nice long letter, filling in Emirates' background and making it clear what the school is getting – an impudent, mannerless young girl who recently set a summer house on fire because she was bored, brought up by Catholic vegetarians who think children should be allowed to develop along their own lines, a theory which does not sit well with the general chalet school ethos as it involves never saying no to a child. EBD provides updates and sometimes active roles for former pupils and mistresses consistently throughout the series. This is what makes the books an entire world and is part of their appeal. In shocks, we receive, via Jack Maynard, a significant update about Robin Humphreys, who arrived as a six-year-old in the second book of the series and is now a university graduate. Robin is part of the Bettany Russell Maynard clan by adoption, having made her home initially with Madge and later Joey. She took over the role of young, delicate child which Joey herself originally occupied, allowing Joey to take on an older sister role. Robin's health was a worry for much of her time at the school, as there was a fear she had inherited her mother's frail constitution. Because of this, Dr Jem apparently hoped she would never marry, which seems an extraordinary position to take, but I think the unspoken concern was really that Robin was not strong enough for pregnancy and childbirth. And in shocks, we get the news that, presumably to Dr Jem's relief, Robin is to become a nun. Only a few chalet school girls do this. Luigia di Ferrara joins the Plaw Clares in the Tyrol, Mary Arson, a sixth former in the chalet school in the island, intends to join a community. Margot Maynard is, somewhat implausibly, destined to be a medical missionary after leaving school. Robin not only goes on to become a nun, but we also, in another 25 books or so time, see her as a nun, going to the rescue of a young, friendless orphan in quite the superhero manner. 
but in shocks, the initial reaction of Miss Dean at least is that she is unlikely to ever to see Robin again. Jack quickly puts her right about this. Robin will be returning in March to see everyone before she begins her postulancy, and in any case, Miss Dean is invited over to Canada for Christmas. This news leaves Miss Dean wrapped in a maze of delight, which is hardly surprising, as she rarely seems to leave the school apart from trips to pick up stationery. Miss Dean gets quite a lot to do in shocks, possibly because Miss Wilson is in Switzerland and EBD needed an adult who wasn't Miss Annesley to take on various plot-related tasks. It is Miss Dean who meets Emirates at Cardiff Airport, Miss Dean who whisks Bride off when the school reaches Cardiff on its start-of-term journey to the island and braces her up about Elfie's news. It is Miss Dean who catches Emirates coming down the wrong stairs, who meets Miss Annesley at the end of half-term, who is involved in discussions with Commander Christie about the possibility of hidden treasure, who partners with Miss Annesley at the staff party for the book title The Pillars of the House, and it's Rosalie Dean, of all people, who comes second in the staff party competitions. Rosalie is one of my favourite characters. She is quiet and unassuming and gets the job done, and it's good to see her off the sidelines and in the action. A lot of the action in shocks centres on the middles. At this stage in the Shalley School's history, the middles are comprised of Mary Lou Trelawney and the gang, with the Dorbarn twins, the juniors below them, and Betsy Lucy and Blossom Willoughby's crew forming the senior middles above. Miss Annesley picks Mary Lou, Doris Hill and Vi Lucy to look after Emirates, and they and the rest of the gang do their utmost to bring Emirates into line and make her understand what being at school actually entails, answering her questions about the school rules and taking her to watch the older girls playing netball and hockey. It is Mary Lou and the gang who are working in the garden on the day Miss Burnett falls down a hidden well. This is entirely Mary Lou's fault. She has brought a sharpened pair of dressmaking scissors to school, which she is using to prune roses at entirely the wrong time of year. Miss Burnett catches her out, Mary Lou gets caught in the roses, and Miss Burnett leaps over a clump of lilies towards her and disappears into the earth. How Miss Burnett didn't break any bones leaping into a 40-foot well is, quite frankly, a mystery. The middles also provide unlooked-for entertainment for the staff with their attempts at French translation and then have a major falling out with Emirates which prompts her to escape to the outdoors and jam a scarecrow into the pond overflow outlet. Miss Annesley does not know the detail of this falling out but she is wise enough to know that something must have been going on and tells the middles this which results in Mary Lou initiating a reconciliation. But the action is not all with the middles. As usual, because this is something EBD is very good at, we also spend plenty of time in the company of the prefects as well as with the staff. Perhaps because of the absence of several of the usual adult chalet school cast, a man has an active role in the plot of shocks, Commander Christie, the school's landlord. Not the story about Emirates, although he is involved in that at one point, but the story about the school grounds. Yes, in this book, the landscaping around the school gets its own story. A previously hidden well swallows up Miss Burnett while the middles are gardening. Water then begins to fill the well but never gets above a certain point, so there is obviously an outflow. This turns out to be the sunken path, which is in fact a stream or ditch which carries water to the hollow, which, once the water is flowing again, turns out to be a pond. There is another outflow on the far side of the pond, which allows the water to continue to flow down the cliff and to the sea. A fairly significant chunk of the school grounds is therefore transformed during this book from useful grassy area which can be used for unsupervised recreation to highly dangerous body of water which needs to be fenced off with restricted access. And there is more, because the unlandscaping of 300 years previously which had dried up the hollow and stopped water filling up the well, no, I have literally no idea, was done by a wicked ancestor of Commander Christie to protect his hidden treasure. EBD has thus quite nicely set up a sequence of events which will allow the school to leave the island when she is ready for this to happen. Commander Christie just has to find the treasure and then he can afford to live in the big house again and give the school notice to quit. 
EBD does another full term on the island before invoking this plotline and then doesn't actually need it because the school itself has decided to leave. But full marks for setting it up, even if it did involve a tedious quantity of Commander Christie's family history. There is more tedium with the end of term nativity play. I generally skip over these, but I reread this one in detail just for you. It's called The Three Kings, so it's about their journey to the stable, which includes what sounds like an important scene where the kings visit Herod. Fourteen carols and an orchestral piece later, the three kings arrive at the stable, and once all the baby angels are in place, that's the end of the play. But it is not the end of the book. Joey Maynard takes that glory, having flown over with her tiny twins because she couldn't bear the thought of missing the school's Christmas play. Hello, Joey. It's been... Actually, it hasn't been quiet without you. There's been a lot going on. It's been a typical term at the chalet school, but Shocks makes a much better title. You have been listening to Top Hole, written, researched and presented by Deborah Lofus. Production and music by Kit Lofus. You can email us at topholepodcast at gmail.com. Next time you might finally get your coffee and cigarettes. Top Hole is a Lofus Towers production. <laughs>